You know what? I'm going to throw the pop shield across the room now. <laughs> uh, so, by the way, Alex, meet Hakan. Hakan, meet yeah, Alex. it's nice to finally. Yes, meet you, yes, same here. <laughs> I've been a big admirer and watching uh, your attaché shows, and so it's great to meet in person. How's the rain in LA? <laughs> Yeah, yeah you guys of, are really having it as bad as we are. Yeah, I know. Then the Bay Area is crazy up there. They've had what more rain than they've had in 150 years or something in a matter of one month. So, yeah, I was listening to the um, to NPR, the, my local local my California Bay Area NPR feed this this afternoon, and they were saying that New Year's Day was the second wettest day on record. Oh, I in believe the, in the Bay Area. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was telling Paul, I was thinking about uh, investing in a canoe, you know, around here. So just oh, get around. <laughs> well, it always seems to be a mixed blessing in California. You need it. And then, you yeah, know, it's feast, feast or famine. And then, mm-hmm. as Paul said, we're going to have the fires come summer. So when everything turns dry, you'll have the water to, to extinguish the fire. I know. That's yeah. not a joke. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let me pull the first sound that we usually do. Uh, I, oh, no, of course it's not. I have a new crew of cleaning ladies, and they're amazing because they're actually cleaning my de- my old desk, but they moved all the buttons every time, so I'm like on silent. I just want to tell you both good luck. We're all counting on you. Oh, there you go. Um, oh, for, first of all, guys, we have a guest. So Alex said at the very end of... Uh, well, I'll do that again at the very beginning of the last episode of last year, our annual guest. So we decided to have a guest to start with this year. So it's done. Right, Alex? Yeah. I think I said, I'll see you. In, or, you know, I did say annual guest. And I think I said, we'll see you in three years. But either way, I'm wrong, which is nice. Who do we have with us, Alex? I'll let you introduce. Uh, you can first, let's say, his Twitter handle. because I was going to say, well, I yeah. think I should introduce him by his Twitter handle, LA Flyer, who has hit us with some knowledge basically since this show's inception yeah uh, all of these wonderful like additions to the things the corrections the sort of the very very valuable actuallys uh that uh we then we we regurgitate on the show as if we came up with them ourselves but um i you introduce yourself I, I want you to to tell everybody your actual name and uh uh how we came across each other the three of us well, thank you very much for uh, the introduction there. My name's Hakan. I live out here in Los Angeles, so hence the handle LA Flyer. Been a big podcast listener from, I think, episode number one. And amazingly, oh, wow. uh, for whatever reason, whenever I, you'll, you guys will find out that I do a lot of traveling. And whatever reason, when I ended up being in Tokyo, walking around Tokyo, your podcast feed would pop up that you guys had a new episode. <laughs> for some reason, it was like uncanny month after month when I was in, for some reason, on a business trip to Tokyo, you guys would pop up and you guys be like my little companion on my uh, travels across Asia, particularly. Oh, wow. So, and uh, over time, uh, we've conversed and uh, through tweets and stuff like that, and I'm enjoyed to get to know you guys. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you're, you're a superstar. Yeah, you're a superstar. And I, as you know, because I mentioned you, I met you for the first time, was it November, was it? You were in London. Correct. I was in uh, November with the family on a vacation. So, I know that you have a lot of stories, so it will be a fun podcast. Obviously, I need to say first a date. We're recording this on January the 12th. Oh, wow. It's exactly a month after the last one we recorded. January the 12th, 2023. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, guys. I hope that Santa Claus was nice with you all. Um, This won't be, obviously, uh, like last time, this won't be released immediately. First, because I'm going to be slight edits if need be, but also to leave some room for the previous episode to breathe. So, probably in a week or so. So, probably around the 20th. 
by the time you listen to this, you will know, but know that it's recorded on the 12th. I need to play the music yes. for uh, uh, our friend Gen Kenai. Happy New Year again. So, so before uh, before we go into more proceedings, have you flown Southwest in the past few weeks? <laughs> have you flown at all in the last 48 hours? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> what happened? What happened with the FAA? Do you know? From what I hear, it was uh, some sort of software update or some sort of update an engineer was uh, doing a few days ago and uh, replaced some file, and that was the end of it. Wrong file in some database and corrupted everything. So it took them quite a while to figure that one out. But it's the, well, that's I'm crazy. Sure, uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy that uh, something so simple can uh, take down the aviation system in a country. Is it is it restored uh, today, the 12th? Or is it- We're back to normal, but uh, I'm sure there's probably a, a few residual delays of, you know, who knows? Crews and aircraft maybe being out of place because last yesterday they had a huge amount of cancellations. And for those who don't know, the reason I mentioned Southwest is because they had a huge meltdown during the holidays, like a massive one. <laughs> so I hope you didn't fly them, or I mean, you might have wanted to fly them, but you could you couldn't. But that was another. I don't know what happened either there because I actually didn't look it up. But that was also quite quite something. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was that was bad. They had um, again listening to the same feed I was listening to about the fires. They had Leslie Joseph. I don't know if you guys know she's the CNBC's aviation correspondent. She's phenomenal on Twitter, and I can't remember her Twitter. Maybe it's just at Leslie Joseph. But she was kind of um, dissecting or postmorteming this this NOTAMS issue, yeah. and no one yeah. that she spoke to could could recall. And these were pilots in their decades long career. Other than 9-11, when the entire U.S. airspace was shut down, um, just for, primarily for takeoffs, because I think landings were, they could get planes that were already in the air down, but everything else for 90 minutes, it was, there was, there was nothing. And it was a 1950s system that the primary database was corrupted, and then the backup database was based off the corrupted primary database. Oh, no way. <laughs> So wow. that's not And I, I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, right afterwards, Canada had a little outage also yesterday. Oh, no, for, I didn't see for that. About, for about 30 minutes or something, they put a notice out that they're having some issues also. And everyone was like, oh, no, it can't be two places at once. So but, uh, Canada resolved it super, super fast. So it was unrelated, but it was just coincidental. On a similar note, uh, it, in the Philippines, so Manila, the entire system, the entire operation system oh. of the Philippines that was based in Manila, that is based in Manila, and they're Naya, the the main airport sh- shut down on the 1st of January. Apparently there was, there was a power cut, but the the um, the generator that was supposed to do the to, uh, the UPS basically didn't work. And that locked the entire country down for like three or four days. Like th- there were flights coming, I don't know, from Tokyo, et cetera, that had to like six hours in go back because it was literally nothing they could do. Uh, very different circumstances, but not really fun if you're on the 1st of January <laughs> trying to go to that's, see family. That's bad. <laughs> by, the, by the way, talking about that, uh, I hope this doesn't happen today. Uh, talking about a UPS, I actually bought a UPS, which is not connected now, which is very <laughs> stupid of me. Maybe that's what they did at Naya. Uh, because I had a power cut on the 24th of December. Mm. Uh, thank God it got resolved before Christmas Eve. And then I had another power cut on the 31st of December. Uh, the evening so that was a candle lit uh, start of the festivities with friends and beers and so that was that was that was fun and then i had uh, two days ago for for like exactly a minute this time so that was really not really a power cut however obviously if a power cut happens tonight the entire feed goes down and i'm losing you and of course the recording doesn't happen so 
I bought the UPS, but it arrived literally an hour before the recording, so I couldn't actually you know, charge the battery in it. So let's just pray to the gods of electricity uh, that uh, <laughs> we don't have a power cut and that this podcast can happen. Uh, we'll, we'll see in about an hour and a half. So let's go back to you, Akan. Can you tell us a little bit about your history? Because this is how we started actually dis discussing when we met in London. And I was immediately fascinated because you have so many stories. I think we could do like four hours on just the stories of you. But let's maybe to some uh, context, tell us what you do now and where it all started. Well, we can maybe uh, start just a little bit of background. My parents, uh, like you, are international. My mom is Swedish. My dad is Turkish. And uh, due to their See, careers... See, very similar to me, man. <laughs> exactly. Just one country off. <laughs> one country off. Exactly. We're very, very close. So we're, we're, we're brothers in our own... Uh, in, in who knows? But anyhow... Uh, <laughs> So uh, as a little child, I was that little child, uh, which we did a lot of traveling, and I was that little boy that always loved airplanes, and uh, I always asked to go to the cockpit. I asked my parents if we can go to the airport a couple hours early just to stand there and watch airplanes. And one of my dad's dear friends was also a travel agent, so on the weekends, I used to actually like to go hang out at his travel agency and just thumb through airline brochures and That's check so out, cool. collect, collect timetables. So it was uh, kind of preordained that I was going to do something with aviation. And uh, that kind of led me into my uh, career. Uh, when I was in high school, actually, I got very lucky. Alex, you probably know here in the US, we have, uh, it's called, uh, well, it was called at the time, uh, it was like a work uh, work study program, regional occupation program, I believe it was called, in, at least in the 1980s. And uh, what it basically was, uh, you got to get the afternoon off a couple days a week in high school and you get to go work at some uh, company or some place for credit. So, and by luck that year, they had uh, openings at American airlines at LAX. Oh, so wow. I got myself uh, the position at American airlines. And when I was over there, I was assigned to work in their flight ops uh, office kind of underneath the terminal where the pilots would come in and collect their paperwork. Uh, they would do all the gate assignments for their flights. And uh, I mean, it was like, uh, it was, it was, it wasn't even a job to me. It was, it was like heaven. I, I could kind of sleep there overnight if I needed to, but obviously it was, uh, it was limited to, I think it was 16 hours a week. You could do maximum. So I'd max out my 16 hours and that kind of opened the door. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, when I graduated American airlines, they said, well, we'll, we'll happily hire you as an employee, but you got to start in passenger services or ramp being a union shop. And I mean, you're welcome to come back to operations, but who knows how long that might be. That might be one or two years or might be 10 years. It's all based on seniority and who wants to bid in there. So uh, I didn't pursue that, which was fine. I mean, I was going to go off to university anyway. So it, it might have been a little bit uh, challenged trying to do everything at once. Uh, by chance, uh, I started university here in Los Angeles. By chance, one of my dad's friends who was uh, executive at uh, Procter & Gamble in Europe ended up uh, getting a job as the chairman of Turkish Airlines. And uh, at that time, wow. Turkey had a prime minister who was, uh, wanted to uh, privatize companies. He was very commercially minded. He wanted to open up the country. So he brought in a lot of uh, executives, new executives to a lot of state enterprises, which Turkish Airlines was at the time. I believe that about 30 airplanes, but in, and their CEOs traditionally had been like ex Air Force generals or, you know, kind of yeah. the, the, the typical setup. And uh, so this, my dad had mentioned, hey, next time, you know, why don't you, next time you're on vacation in Turkey, 
uh, stop by and, you know, see and just say hi to them. And, you know, since you, you love aviation, who knows where it might go. So as, as uh, promised that summer, I happened to drop in in Istanbul and I met him. And within maybe like 30 minutes, we kind of hit it off because he had a very big, uh, you know, he, he most of his career had been overseas. So he had a very Western business mind and uh, obviously me educated overseas. We, we just hit it off. And, uh, and what I didn't know at the time was uh, Turkish Airlines at the time had, was about to contract in Scandinavian Airlines to come in and assist him. Uh, oh. with kind of a business overhaul. And I guess in the back of his mind, he knew that I also had my Swedish side, so oh. it could it could serve some value. <laughs> so he, he, he encouraged me. He says, hey, why don't you why don't you stay here and you want to work with us? Of course, mother's side of me was, well, you know, I got university in the U.S. I got to finish that. So, well, somehow <laughs> we made it work and uh, he brought me in as I was almost like an executive assistant to him. And I kind of got carte blanche to uh, go around the company to different departments. Uh, I was uh, piggybacking with this SAS team, which was looking at a lot of everything from flight ops to uh, reservation systems. So I got got to play, put my hands in a lot of different departments across the company. Wait, so just just so unclear, yeah. your first gig, not even out of university, but out of high school, was shadowing the head of Turkish Airlines. Yeah, it was kind of, kind of a kind of amazing. That's true, but <laughs> wow. but it was but it was also crazy because I was in Istanbul for like a month at a time, and then I had to come back to the U.S. and try to go to school a little bit and back and forth. And I mean, it was it was uh, it was nuts for a while, but we got it done. And probably you know the, the, the in a short amount of time, uh, uh, I focused with this SS team. I was able to focus in basically on two areas, and uh, the most exciting things we were able to do there is. Uh, focus in on one data OCC and ops control center. And I mean, it was still very paper-based. I mean, they still had 1960s, 1970s things. I remember like aircraft scheduling was being done on this like big paper matrix sheets and stuff like that. Wow. Uh, there were the old, old teletypes with, you know, I don't know if you remember those old telexes where it's like, you know, yeah. spits out like these confetti strings type of things. I mean, that this old, old technology. And one of the big things that SS hit on was, yes, this might have worked in the 60s and 70s when you had 20 airplanes, but now we're heading towards the 90s. So, we got to get new technology in there. So, one of the projects I was able to work on was uh, being involved with the modernization of uh, that. And then the other uh, very exciting thing was their network planning. I got to work with uh, SS, brought in a network planning team and uh, hub management team. And uh, at that time, during the 80s, SS was, you know, a really high quality airline. It's not necessarily a small player like it is, let's say, in Europe today. It was really a well-known and they had a super efficient Copenhagen hub. And the way it was, the way it worked is because flights would come in, it would be very tightly packed. And they were the one of the first ones that, you know, did this hub and spoke model in Europe. Oh, and uh, at the time, Turkish Airlines, let's say, I'll give you an example. Turkish Airlines used to fly to Paris every single day. But uh, the flight on, uh, let's say, Mondays and Thursdays might be at 9 a.m. The flight on uh, Wednesdays and Saturdays was at 2 p.m. And nothing kind of matched. Everything was a little bit, you know, haphazard. And it went back to the days of, hey, we have one extra 7-27. Where do we want to send it today? Well, there's a lot of demand in uh, Paris. So next season on Wednesday, let's add an extra flight. Oh, we have the spot at uh, 3 p.m. So, okay, we'll throw it in there. There was really not a lot of planning. So, you know, you didn't get connection flows. And, you know, if you happen to connect and the flights happen to connect, great. But there's not a lot of planning in it. So now with a much more 
commercially minded team there. And with the help of SS, they were able to redesign the schedules. So you know, basically they created a, you know, the first hub wave banks. I mean, it was really small at that time. They had maybe 30 odd airplanes, but the idea was, you know, European departures would leave in the morning. They'd come back in the afternoon. You'd have the, like the Middle Eastern stuff to the Levant and the Arabian Gulf leaving in the afternoon or the evening. So you get this like synergistic flow back and forth. So, I mean, that was fun. And uh, basically, I did that for almost uh, two years. And at the time, a lot of things were happening at Turkish Airlines. I mean, they launched a, a brand campaign, uh, created a new livery. They launched new long-haul routes. They got their first A310-300. So, they started flying to Tokyo and uh, New York. Uh, they introduced business class. Uh, they created uh, wow. their first frequent flyer program. So, a lot of things was happening under the CEO. Like, And he was there for only like four or five years. But I stayed there for about two years. And then I finally, I said, well, you know, I have to come back and I have to finish my university as much fun as this is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll still be around if you guys need me in a couple of years. So, I mean, I came back to Los Angeles. And then while I was going to school here in Los Angeles, one day I happened to see an ad for uh, a company that's dear to your heart, Virgin Atlantic. Mm, they were never looking for them. never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had started service to Los Angeles, uh, I guess, the summer of uh, 1990, and they were looking for duty managers that, you know, the one flight to Gatwick. So I applied, and next thing I know, I got the job. So I was a, became a duty manager at Virgin Atlantic, LAX. You know, I very quickly realized that I'd rather deal with uh, the back end of the operation than the front end of the operation <laughs> with the passengers. And, uh, of course, Virgin being, you know, having the Virgin uh, Music Group and stuff like that. I mean, there, we had tons of celebrities and, you know, tons of stories I could tell you there. I mean, tons of things happened. But before you know it, about a year and a half into the job, uh, Virgin who's uh, had a cargo division, opened their own cargo warehouse at LAX. So I kind of transferred over. Let me f talk to boxes instead of passengers. That was, that was a little bit more fun. So I uh, continued over there for uh, a couple more years. And of course, this time, at, you know, you'll, you'll probably know in the early 90s, it was a tough time at Virgin because, uh, you know, the Gulf War One had started and ended, which, you know, created the run-up in oil prices. Uh, it was in the midst of that uh, dirty tricks campaign that yeah. BA was uh, playing against them. Of course, Virgin didn't really quite know what was going on at the time. It came out later. And I mean, Branson sued him. And I think he got the biggest libel uh, award yeah. in the UK history at the time against BA. So, I mean, a lot of things were going on there. But again, it was, you know, basically you're waiting on one flight in and one flight out every day. So, it wasn't that exciting, especially after what I'd done at uh, American and, uh, and Turkish. And uh, obviously, LAX might have tens of thousands of employees, but it's a little bit of a small community. So, I, over time, I got to know people. And one of the companies I got to know, I got to know the managers and the owners of a, a ground handling vendor at LAX. And uh, they encouraged me to come over. And of course, they were handling something like, you know, 20 international airlines. So I'm like, oh, well, this will be a lot of fun. So I uh, went over and I took over their uh, flight ops department, the folks that uh, did the turnaround coordinators and uh, the weight and balance team. And I mean, that was a hell of a lot of fun because, you know, now we're chasing after 20 airlines. And I mean, that's kind of the first time I learned that. 20 airlines might operate the same airplane, but boy, they do. Their procedures are so different. I mean, one airline <laughs> chocks, you know, puts the wheels on the chocks one way. The other one does something else. I mean, it's, you know, we're such a common industry, but it's so different. I was just going to say that, you know, ground handling is an interesting thing because it's, you have, like you said, you, I was so interested to hear you refer to it as a vendor. I never thought of it like that, but that's exactly what it is. It's for all of these airlines that have one flight a day and it doesn't 
make economic sense to have their own ground handling operation there, but somebody's got to do it. So companies like the one that you're describing exist to fill that need. And I just think that must've been, I mean, it's, that's, that's the world my father lived in still. Um, but going out and as you say, you know, if you got to do one airline with this and that airplane and this, and it's, it must've been, it must've been fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a great experience. Uh, and during this time too, I always, I was always, I'm always looking to do like the next thing. So I ended up uh, getting an FA dispatcher's license. No way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when was that? Which, uh, which year? Roughly? That was, uh, in the mid nineties. And so tell us, for those who don't know, what is that license? Why do you do it? And is it hard to get? I have no idea for that. The last question, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Well, the dispatcher here in the U.S. is uh, the operational control of an airplane is resides between the captain, the authority for it resides between the captain and the dispatcher. And the dispatcher usually works in the airline headquarters, prepares a flight plan, you know, looks at the weather, figures out how much fuel you need. And also, uh, while the aircraft is en route, can remain in communications with the crew to give them a heads up if something's going on or if the crew has yeah. any issues, they contact them. Uh, the test, uh, it's, it's changed since then, but it, uh, back uh, when I took it in the 90s, it was uh, had two parts. had a practical part where you sit down in front of an FAA inspector and they literally grill you on different uh, subjects, whether it's meteorology, aircraft performance. We had to create a paper flight plan by hand, you know, using old, uh, you know, wind corrections. I think uh, my flight plan, it was based on a 737 and I believe it was uh, Oakland to LAX or something. So it was a relatively short, but we had to, you know, figure out the airway routings. And we, you know, those days, you know, you got the, there was no such thing as an iPad where you just look up stuff, you know, it was all <laughs> paper charts and manual calculations. Wow. And then I believe then there is also a, uh, a RIN test, which was multiple choice. I believe if the, somebody can correct me, I'm sure. I think it was about a hundred questions or so. And you had to score, I believe about 80% on that. And then you get your flight dispatcher license. So it's an FAA license that stays with you. And uh, I mean, it allows you to go work at the airlines. Obviously, every airline, if they hire you as a flight dispatcher, they also have their own ground school. So they teach you the company procedures and the company yeah. specifics. So. so how long a process was that to get your dispatch and then get up to speed with an airline? I went to school. I had to go to school for it. I want to say it was about three months. Wow. Uh, and, uh, then also, uh, there was like a weekend crash course, uh, to kind of like help you teach, teach the test to you, the RIN test. And then you go and you took the RIN test at the end of that weekend. And then you waited for a date for a FA examiner to come in and uh, do the practical for you. Wow. So it's, 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 it, it wasn't, uh, it's not easy. It's, you know, digging into books and the problem, I mean, I don't want to say it's a problem, but a lot of the stuff was written back in the in the U.S. Aviation is guided by the federal aviation regulations, and a lot of these were written back in the 1940s and the 1950s. So <laughs> a lot of it hasn't been amended, but you still have to learn a lot of this uh, material, which might never necessarily be used in uh, today's operation. But you have to know these rules and regulations inside yeah, out, of course. And then. Wow. Uh, as I said, I was, I'm always looking for the next thing. <laughs> so, you know, I did uh, about five, six years at this ground handler. It was super fun, but, you know, got to see how the business is done by 20 different airlines. Uh, next thing I know is uh, Polar Air Cargo down in uh, Long Beach. Uh, they were looking for a manager of flight operations control. 
So uh, it's basically overseeing crew scheduling, dispatch, and you, you decided to keep going on the talking to boxes. Exactly, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, transitioned over to uh, Polar, and uh, it was it was really good. Uh, the only problem is uh, September 11th happened, oh. and then shortly afterward, or actually, think I think about the, about the same time, uh, Atlas Air purchased Polar Air Cargo. So, uh, mm-hmm. and about a year after that, the uh, job transitioned to New York. And uh, that was, uh, if I wanted to stay employed, uh, we had to commute to New York. So, I was able to work one, one week in New York on duty as uh, the OCC manager. And then uh, one week off back here in Los Angeles. So, but, you know, that was a cross-country commute. So, <laughs> you oh, can imagine. I, I, I assumed that you were just going to say, so I went somewhere else. I did, <laughs> I'm impressed that you uh, had... Had the wherewithal to do that uh, cross-country commute. Did you accrue a lot of miles then, then, obviously? Well, well, sometimes we'd be able to jump seat, but uh, during peak periods and uh, especially going into my shift, since I knew I had to be on duty at a certain day or a certain time also, uh, sometimes I'd end up buying uh, one-way tickets on American or United, uh, or JetBlue had just started out of Long Beach. So sometimes I'd end up buying some tickets just to make sure that I got to work. Of course, yeah. commuting in and out of New York, summer or winter, can be difficult. Whether it's the the snow in the winter or the uh, thunderstorms in the summer, so you know I've gotten diverted to landed in places like Syracuse or Baltimore, and you know each of those commutes were uh, eventful for sure. A lot of them, <laughs> though. Uh, luckily enough, uh, a little, after about two three years of doing that, I was able to slip into a new role over at the Atlas as a manager of flight operations, which gave me a lot more flexibility. And I was able to focus on like special projects such as fuel conservation, uh, technology, and uh, some financial analysis work. But uh, during this period, uh, it's uh, I was with my week, one week off. Remember, I used to work one week on and one week off. Uh, I would often be contacted by friends at other airlines or industry groups to help them out with uh, projects that they had on the side. So it's kind of like opened the door to uh, consultancy. And uh, over time, these uh, side projects became larger and larger in uh, scope and pay. And then next thing we know, the 2008-2009 financial crisis hits, and uh, Atlas was looking to cut costs. So basically, I took a bunch of cash and a bunch of stock and uh, decided to pursue consulting full-time. Now, I was very lucky that one of my uh, people that or companies that I'd been dealing with, a big IT vendor, pretty much was willing to uh, fund me for two years or guarantee about two years worth of business for me. So I was able to cover my uh, salary for the most part. So it wasn't going to be a huge leap. Wouldn't that be something great as consultants, right, Alex? Yeah. And and since then, you've been doing that. Yeah, I've been been doing full-time consulting. Basically, the practice we focus on airline operations, management, and security. Uh, The areas that probably generate the biggest... Workload and income are uh, a lot of IT projects at airlines because they're always looking to save and automate where they can and also providing uh, management support to uh, smaller companies that, for instance, can't justify a position, whether it be like a safety manager or quality assurance auditing. And uh, also stay busy in the regulatory arena, whether it's, uh, you know, manual writing or helping stuff with uh, filings with uh, government authorities. So, you know, clients have been everything from airports, airlines to IT vendors to service providers. And uh, I've also been lucky. uh, I've sat on a couple of work groups, uh, some industry groups like uh, IATA. So it's Mm. uh, I mean, it's I, I find it super interesting 
kind of going back to my grand handling days of seeing uh, the inside of so many different companies and how everybody, we all operate in the same industry, but, you know, we come at it from, we have such different ways of doing it sometimes. So it's, uh, you know, we're all trying to solve the same problem, but uh, it's uh, done very differently, different airlines. And I really enjoy uh, being able to watch that and be part of it. So now also we understand Alex and I, how and why you've been able to give us sometimes insights that were like looking at, we were looking at each other, like, how does he know all this? Like, <laughs> it's really funny you say that Paul, because I was thinking um, in the, in the intro or in the early stages of this episode, like this was the guy where that you'd get a DM and I'm like, man, this guy knows his stuff like he's taking <laughs> us to school and now we know why <laughs> exactly finally we know why you, you never wanted to I, I say that i know the answer but you never wanted to not talk to boxes anymore i keep using that analogy of yours but um as in is it still a passion to talk to boxes <laughs> no i mean i'm i'm comfortable doing uh, what i'm doing i mean uh, i i as far as going to something with passenger service i mean i'm i'm a bit of an introvert too so i'm not sure i'm made <laughs> made out to be uh the you know the front facing person i like definitely the back end of the operation whether it's yeah. you know technology or uh you know corporate and stuff like that so the boxes suited me obviously because a lot of people have understood that over the years of you interacting with us and either alex or i mentioning you for that work you've been traveling quite a lot we took at least pre-covid you're really traveling a lot right absolutely i mean prior prior to uh, covid i was doing about two hundred thousand miles a year i was holy uh, crap that was top <laughs> lead on uh, both american and united uh, i used to travel at least uh you know one if not two weeks a month uh, i used to do these epic trips uh, being los angeles based and a lot of my focus was uh, asia pacific so i used to do these you know epic trips to asia whether it's japan hong kong uh singapore malaysia you know hit four cities in uh, four or five days and uh, come mm -hmm. back and forth or and i remember in three weeks i did like three uh two australia trips and one new zealand trip so i used to rack up the miles but uh, that was uh, pre-covid it's, uh, it's changed since then a bit why american and united was it just because he was depending on the routes or was it because you were you couldn't decide between <laughs> well being los angeles based i mean they were kind of yeah. the biggest carriers here so i mean those are the alliances uh here in the u.s uh i wouldn't actually I, if i could fly a partner let's say like cafe pacific or ana i would uh i didn't necessarily yeah. always fly american or united it's just uh those were at least the programs that i was uh part of being uh, part of the you know the star alliance and one world alliance which were the two big carriers at los angeles at the time that had good international networks the star alliance lounge at uh, the international terminal i mean i'm talking the last time in la was when i saw you alex there which was when 2019 19 uh that lounge star alliance i think is actually star alliance lounge uh, on the what's the name of the international terminal TV? again yeah yeah, the Tom Bradley International Terminal. Yeah. yeah. That lounge is pretty cool, actually. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I don't know if you still exists. <laughs> uh, uh, it's still there. So you did you have a favorite? You know, as uh, carriers, uh, I mean, probably my two or three favorite airlines would be, I'd say, currently would be Qatar, Cathay, yeah. if they ever come back to their size and shape and network that they had. They have a... a I used to love their lounges in Hong Kong. And sometimes even if I'd go to Japan from LA, I could uh, route my way out of the way, you know, take a few, fly a few extra hours to route via Hong Kong even sometimes. Oh my God, uh, you're glad for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, ANA is up there too. So 
I mean, in many ways, I'd go out. I, I wouldn't go out of my way, but if I could avoid some of the U.S. carriers, I would. I mean, I'd find the service and the food, and you know, it's the overall ambiance on some of these uh, foreign carriers to be, you know, superior. And also, with uh, clients footing the bill, I've found that sometimes, in many cases, these foreign carriers were actually cheaper than, you know, what the U.S. carriers were selling on the same route. So, yeah, I can I can definitely believe that. Did you? Um because you were early on in your life a duty manager, did you were you judging? <laughs> are you still judgy when you are in an airport or in a in a, an aircraft? Just as a passenger going for your work or even holidays, are you? And I'm not saying judgy in a like condescending <laughs> or negative way, but will you be? <laughs> because I'm sure you know Alex obviously does as well in a certain way because he's you know even if he was not a duty manager, we all do. But you have this background, so you might understand things that we don't i think that's natural i mean it's in many ways i know the way you know things are supposed to be done or you know how how what the idea was or the concept behind something so when i see somebody whether they're in a uniform and they're very they look very sloppy i mean i look back at my virgin days i mean before the agents went out out to the ticket counter it was almost like a, a uniform inspection i mean you got to make sure that the agents you know their their hair was right and uh you know the the tie was up correctly and You know, so when I see employees that just look sloppy at the airport, you know, I, I notice that or, you know, when uh, on board with the food delivery, I mean, sometimes, you know, the food could be awful itself, but, you know, the service of how it's supposed to be delivered. I mean, I don't go out of my way and complain about it or anything like that. It's just it is what it is, but I do notice it. So, I mean, having the insight from knowing how it's supposed to be done and when you see it's not done, it, it kind of rings a bell or you notice it. I was thinking something, but I don't think I'm going to say it. <laughs> oh, because you, yeah, you wanted to judge actually. <laughs> no, no, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. But the thing you said about, uh, about the service, you know, in many cases, trumping the quality of the, of the, I guess we'll call it the hard product and be it, be it food or seed or anything, I think is, is something that's, that's so lost on the, on a lot of the U.S. airlines and why I'm, I'm like you, if I have the choice between going through, you know, on a, on a not us airline, actually, and, and BA, well, just, you know, we might as well kick BA in this episode too. I will, uh, I will, because I think even if the food is exactly the same and the hard product is exactly the same, that, that culture of, of service delivery is, um, is, is going to make the experience that much better. I will, I will add before you answer, I can, I will add the, sometimes to me, simply the willingness It doesn't have to be good. I mean, sorry, it doesn't have to be perfect. Even sometimes it's not good. It can be even average. But if they're trying their best, that's good enough for me. Uh, maybe I have low standards. I don't know. But I, I, what I hate the most, and you mentioned SAS, and SAS had this one flight. I'm, I mean, I think I've overused that example, so I'm going to stop because it's not SAS bashing. I felt really, it's just they didn't want to do it. And that's for me the worst part of uh, when I'm in the flight. It doesn't matter which class you are or whatever. When you feel that the entire crew doesn't want to do it, maybe it's, if it's one person or two, you say maybe they're having a bad day, which all, all of us have, but we're just sitting in front of our computer so nobody sees that. But sometimes, man. <laughs> I mean, you can have the best hard product in the world, but if the service and the service delivery is not there, and I mean, details matter, and, and maybe I'm spoiled too, but my wife, she comes from, uh, her background was in the hospitality business, and she's worked for luxury hotels, and, you know, she, she definitely understands of how, you know, appearances matter, and how you got a Greek guest, and how, how you got to have the presence and service delivery for them, and it really does matter between one brand to another brand, and 
And I mean, as it, you could have the best seed in the world, but you know, if they just throw your plate at you, it kind of casually, nonchalantly, I mean, <laughs> that uh, you realize that as a customer and you take that away. Well, you still flew United. No, I'm sorry. Ooh, la la, what did I just say? <laughs> 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 I had to. United, we, we have, I know we have a lot of people from United. So every time I comment about United, I'm going to get emails. But by chance, uh, since it's not, Going out today, this podcast. I have a week to prepare myself for the comments. Of the no, no, United, you're you 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 you're better than you used to be. Honestly, that's that's an honest. Actually, it's not because I want to avoid the, the criticism. So, so did you where you were flying? You said jump seat. So we were flying in cargo flights, or were you flying in? Passenger flights. We rarely had cargo flights that I actually went between LA and New York, or so. Usually, it was um, passenger airlines. And uh, did you did you get to fly some cool planes then? I mean, fly to be in the jump seat in the cockpit of something really fun. Well, I hate to tell you, but usually the jump seats in the cockpits are not that comfortable. I rather have. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. Often, what happens is, I mean, the, the cockpit jump seat is actually given to you usually as a last resort. The kid gate agents will often try to they'll give you a seat assignment in the cabin somewhere, and then if uh, the seats are not available, then as you know, you ask the captain, and you can usually have access to one of the two jump seats on board. But usually, sitting in the cockpit, it's uh, you know a little cramped. Uh, it's not that much room to stretch out plus uh, you kind of got to be on your best behavior and can't be falling over <laughs> snoring or anything like that so <laughs> yeah probably not nearly as fun on a transcon as it would be on a little hop up uh, to the bay area or vegas or phoenix or something like that that's true and uh, usually i'd be commuting right back after i'd finished my last day of working after working about seven days so basically mm -hmm. i was tired i just want to you know take a seat in the back and uh, pass out for a little bit wow I just keep thinking about the 200,000 200, miles. I don't, Paul, was, do you, what was your record year? Do you know? No, I, I exceeded that, but not like as regularly as, 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 as you did, uh, because you were really, I mean, <laughs> some of the routings you were telling me, telling us about before the pandemic where I was like, what, what does he do? Is he a spy? <laughs> I mean, not, not that uh, friends of ours, Alex and I also tell us the same, used to tell us the same, like, are you a spy? Because your travels make no sense. But <laughs> yeah, some of the stuff you were doing was, uh, we, we discussed when we met, you know, I had a few stories like you when like, four cities in four days in Asia and coming back to Europe for you would be coming back to, to LA. But you did it, I guess, well, I'm sure more regularly than I did. Well, one of the things to keep in mind too, I mean, it sounds like a lot of miles, but you know, LA to Hong Kong, I yeah. believe is about 7,000 miles. So round trips, that's uh, 14, 15,000 miles. So, I mean, the miles add up fast when you're doing these uh, long yeah. hauls. So it's not like I'm jumping all around uh, the US with uh, taking uh, 50 <laughs> legs uh, to rack up, you know, only 20,000 miles, you know, a lot of short hops. So being long hauls, you know, a couple long hauls, you get a lot of mileage. But it's true that if you live on the West Coast in the US, it's often the case that you that you end up actually flying, even if you just do a transcon, and you will rack up miles. It's the same for friends of mine, and myself included, when I used to live in Japan, because anything is basically far, right? It's not like, Europe, it feel, I mean, going to New York is next door, but that's the equivalent of a transcon. And that, and you're already like you're seemingly on the other side of the world. It's not the case, but you know what I mean. Like it feels like a completely from the West Coast. I mean, you're going to either to, what is Tokyo is closer, and then on the other side you go to uh, you come to London, but that's like what 14 hours or something. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you do a lot of miles. Yeah, I mean London's uh, you know 10 hours in one direction, and then you got uh, Tokyo 10 hours in another direction. That's why we should live, Alex. Not for the rain you currently have, but just for the miles. Yeah, because oh it would, by God. definition, we would have more miles. <laughs>
<laughs> it's just a very do you did you did you keep all of the, all those because i know yeah we should say because for for the listeners you you haven't traveled for work a lot since covid uh i mean we're still during covid i mean we're for the ease of uh, conversation let's say post covid we you haven't restarted really traveling a lot no it uh, it's totally changed uh obviously uh i got back my last trip was uh february of uh, 2020 before the shutdown i was in yeah. uh, Australia, got back, didn't fly the rest of 2020, didn't fly at all in 2021. And uh, last wow. year, I've taken, I believe, about three flights for work. Uh, one, Actually, all three were domestic and two leisure trips. So I've uh, barely flown at all since uh, the pandemic, if you want to. How does that feel? You know, uh, I was always in this go, go, go mode. So I mean, initially, you're, uh, probably in 2020, I was having withdrawals and, you know, kind of being cooped up at home and uh, kids not going to school and everything like that. So, I kind of wanted to get out. But uh, now, I think we've adjusted. I've adjusted in so many ways. It's kind of nice to be in your own bed every single day. Mm-hmm. When you do take a trip, you kind of look forward to it. It's not uh, as mundane as That's before. True. And uh, in some ways, I mean, being at the airport, I mean, I'm still at the airport a lot for my work. I think travel has changed. It's just become seemingly, you know, airlines, everybody's been having all these staffing issues, whether it's the hotels, whether it's the airline, whether it's the airport vendors. Uh, it's just been more of a hassle. There have been a lot of cutbacks on uh, on board the aircraft and service levels. So I don't know if travel was is as fun as it was before. Sure, I miss a lot of the destinations. I'm dying to get back to Japan and, you know, or hawker food in Singapore and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, work just hasn't taken me there. And I think uh, over the pandemic, we've learned how to work differently. And uh, a lot of my clients, they just don't even want me to travel and come see them anymore. I mean, nothing don't personal, come. but I think they realize that we can accomplish so much online. Uh, and you know, if they're going to bring me out to Asia, it's, uh, between five days of my expenses plus, uh, travel and hotels and everything like that. One trip might be, you know, 10 grand plus for them while we can accomplish a lot of it online for a fraction. Uh, the three trips that I did take this year, one of them was basically almost a client emergency. So I had to leave within a couple of days. I mean, that's understandable. The other two trips were, they had a, an important meeting with the regulator. So I had to be that, be there for that. Yeah. And the other one was, you know, kind of a, just a, a regular meeting that I would have done in the past, but uh, 90% of the work now is pretty much done online collaboratively. And uh, I mean, I have an interesting story that one of the companies I do a little bit work for, they have a, account manager and he used to travel uh, two weeks a month uh this he's overseas so he's in the asia pacific region he used to travel two weeks a month just traveling around country to country city to city to see all of his clients and he was lucky if he can get to each client about once a quarter now what he does is every single monday and tuesday he gets on the phone with every single one of his clients he's able to talk to all of his clients on a weekly basis instead of seeing them four times a year he's able to basically see them 50 times a year the communication is better the feedback's better the personal relationships are better because now if the client has an issue or whatever they're more open to talking about it or mm-hmm. they give them a weekly updates instead of trying to save something for three months later and then you know by that time it's a become a blown up to be a big disaster so but but but, but. 
but you're not in a plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, there's a lot to be said for personal uh-huh. connections and being there in person and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, no doubt about it. But I think a lot of it can be done remotely. And I can see it, honestly, frank- frankly, because I have the same... Um, my a lot of my work is also consulting. You know, I, I'm, stage for me was always number two, uh, where by definition now it's basically back. We, I still do a lot of uh, online presentations for APAC, but for the rest, it's basically back. But the consulting, um, some clients I haven't seen since 2019 now, so that's really bordering on you know it will come to four years at some point. They're still a dwindling thing if I don't go to see them or if they don't invite me. They, they still, I think, value to, at some point, catch up and have a beer or not have a beer if you if they don't drink. I don't care. But you know what I mean is there's still something to be said because I can feel the the relationship is solid, but there's no kind of rejuvenation of it where it used to be like every X amount of time we would kind of not only catch up, but then we'll go out for food or like in a hawker in Singapore. And then suddenly, you know, you, have, you create a new memory together, which kind of creates something to say online for the next six, eight, 12 months. Right. So I think I'm not, of course, we're an education podcast. I'm going to say that, but at the same time, it's really hard to also, you probably, I keep talking, sorry, but you probably also experienced that, and Alex certainly did. It's really hard to create new relationships, new clients, when you're just doing online. You have to kind of meet people. And for all of them, I hate networking, and I really hate networking. (laughs) At the end of the day, being in other cities and being introduced by a client to another or just friends and something, I cannot replicate that online. I just can't. You just want your freaking flyer models, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. But I think it's, you know, a lot of, I mean, I spoke to, uh, I was speaking to a CFO at a company. And of course, the CFOs are super excited because they realize, hey, we can still do all this work with uh, and generate all this revenue without so much travel We don't have to pay anymore. Yeah, I know. But I think it's going to come down. I mean, I think uh, already on on the West Coast, we're hearing cutbacks with uh, technology companies and entertainment companies all looking to cut their travel costs. But I think uh, maybe 80, who knows, maybe 60, 70% of what previously was done in person can be done remotely. And then you do travel out for those big meetings or, you know, some conferences to meet new clients or, you know, that 30, 40% is travel while the rest is remote. No, I know. And I fully agree with you. Of course, I need to find a justification for travel. I need, especially my my clients who hear this podcast and me telling me, come on, guys, please invite me again. I mean, off of that Zoom thing. <laughs> <laughs> because I need to fly. We we both, by the way, we we because we said it last time, and I'm going to ask going my next question since we're talking just about geeking out in our in aircrafts. Uh, Alex, you're losing your statuses in a few days. Yeah, right? two weeks. Somehow I lose both BA and Virgin Gold. Same for me. I I mean, for me, the date of renewal was slightly different, but I basically make an uh, executive decision by myself. Yeah, about myself, whatever. It's not executive that I would become a free agent as well because I was trying. You know, I was still having this lingering thing in the back of my head in 2019 mode where like, I need to fly that route so I can keep maybe have enough points and tiers to actually. And I said, you know what? No way. I just, I I gave up. I mean, also I will lose BA. I will lose Lufthansa. Uh, The only one that I won't lose is Emirates because Emirates is literally the only airline that decided to, hey, here's gold for another year for free. So I'm like, oh, wow, thank you. Which is why actually I chose him to fly my next flight. Uh, not my next, the one in, in February, because they were so nice to me. See, sometimes actually loyalty works. Right? Yeah. What about you, Hakan? Are you, um, 
Are you losing? Because it's 2023 is the year we're all going to lose our status, I guess. Well, it's uh, similar over here. Uh, I am lucky, though, because I did have so much travel in the beginning for so many years, for 10 plus years, that I've racked up uh, uh, what they call um, like million mile or status or lifetime status. So both oh, with nice. American and United, uh, like with United, I end up with the equivalent of star gold. And uh, American, cool. I forget what uh, the equivalent is uh, with One World. Emerald, uh, I think. Yeah, maybe. it's one, exactly. So I do have lifetime status. So uh, nice. I, I used to have a lot of hotel statuses. Those are going away too because I'm not yeah. staying in hotels anymore that much. So, but yeah, I'm, we're all falling off uh, that the treadmill and that uh, the sugar-induced uh, or mileage-induced highs that we used to have. Yeah, but you said it earlier, go, 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 go. There was a little bit of that. Uh, but yeah, it's still kind of a... The, the other day when I made, I, I sent actually a WhatsApp to, to my dear Alex and said, oh, it. I'm giving up, I'm a free agent now, because that hurdle in my head was still there. Like, no, maybe there's a way, like, you know, in the front of a big like the same tips is similar type of big uh, sheet of paper you just explained earlier but just trying to find a way to have all the miles in the right way for the redemptions at the right time no way there's just no way there's just no way and i wished but no in some ways it's uh, liberating because uh, what i yes. found now it's yeah. with my family trips yes. uh taking the yes. family on vacations now we're actually i'm not necessarily automatically going oh i have to see what what star products or wh what star has or what one world has you know now i can i look at what where we're trying to go what the good fares are what the good product Indeed. is what the good timing is and i try to kind of match the best of all all the requirements and being a free agent we can do that i'm we're not loyal to or we're not uh, uh subservient or you know being held hostage by one company or another anymore so that that is i guess nice i think it's i think it's huge i think i i don't think i'm there yet but i <laughs> at least emotionally intellectually absolutely i know that it's this is it this is silly and and the benefits uh, yeah. are, are absolutely not worth it especially on ba and i you know I, we we talk a lot about ba <laughs> on, this, on this podcast <laughs> and i'm not i'm not dunking on them at, at all but i'm just i'm just that that sense of being a free agent, as Paul said, in the and the kind of liberation of being able to bit to go on fair and also not just on fair, but like you know, I've never flown those guys, or I've never, I never get to fly on a three fifty, or I never get to blah 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 blah. So now I can, and I've got a few, you know, my my trip up to um, where the hell did I go? Oslo on on Norse. I'm like, I would never even, I would have been blind to that as an option on Google Flights. If I had known that this, you know, this this wasn't this wasn't going to happen, and now I'm like, yeah, you know what? Why not? Yeah, you know, why well, not? the benefits I don't think are are worth it anymore. And as Ed said in the last episode, the airlines I don't think care massively about our loyalty. Um, they care about how much how much revenue. I think that that Venn diagram overlap is very small between kind of loyalty value and and revenue. Do you agree with that statement that airlines do not care as much as loyalty as they used to, if they ever did? Well, I think uh, we could see it. A lot of the loyalty programs have shifted from you know mileage based to earnings or revenue based. So definitely, the airlines are looking at the value of a customer based on the income that you bring them. There we have it. I think that that kind of summarizes it. It's kind of distressing, really, because I think the the Southeast Asian carriers, and then I guess in a way the ME three, because so much of their in-flight culture, at least, or their service culture came from those carriers. They were the ones that pioneered this 
the sense of loyalty based on this on service. You, you, you choose to fly them because the experience is good. And also they go where you want to go. And also the price is, is, is fine. The U S and I'm, I'm, of course I'm casting, painting the broad strokes here, but the U S airlines were the ones that understood the quantification and, and commodification of that, of that loyalty with, with, with tier points and frequent flyer miles. So, and credit cards and, and credit cards. And it, and it became a sort of, <clears throat> you chose your, your alliance early on in the U S and there was very little value in switching or not using them, even if the service degraded and degraded and degraded because you might get upgraded. Absolutely. And then one of the things also is if everybody's elite, nobody's an elite. Oh my God. I, I, rem- I, rem- I remember, uh, you know, 20 years ago when you I said that last time, Alex, yeah, exactly. when, when I started uh, being top level elite, the employees would literally go above and beyond for you. You felt like you were a little special, even if, you know, just, hi, here's your, you know, giving you something, uh, welcoming you by your name. I guess you guys have spoken about that in the past, as I recall. Little touches mattered. Now everybody's an elite. So I was uh, at the gate. I was walking by a gate at, uh, there was a Delta flight at uh, the terminal and uh, they had something like a hundred folks on the upgrade list well the airplane only holds like 150 folks how can you have 100 folks on the upgrade list like everybody's some sort of level of elite so once you, everybody is able to you know gamify the system and the airlines have to devalue a lot of the benefits to such a great degree there's you know a good question is it worth it anymore and i think mm-hmm. more and more people are like us you know doubting the value that we derive from it yeah unless you're a massive spender either because of corporate or because you're very wealthy because then you'll I mean, if you're really a massive spender, at some point you get your private jet, I guess. But I mean, <laughs> otherwise, you're right. Too much elite kills elite. I mean, uh, and we we've we've seen we've been discussing that even in the past with with BA here in in London because obviously there's so many people having uh, some uh, some status that uh, you'd be like right in the middle. Uh, and I'm th- pr- probably exaggerating. Alex and I were probably not in the middle. We're probably actually in the back of when you have like massive banks and you know that they have like huge contracts. So for BA, obviously, Paul and Alex or Hakan are not. I mean, they're nice to have and they're very happy. I've ne- I've never gotten a grade in my life with BA, and this is not BA bashing. I just get it. It's an economical, and I think what you said, Alex, is very very right. I would include, however, about the ME three, and that's something. I don't know how comfortable or not you're about talking about Turkish nowadays, but I think Turkish is, has been doing smart, a smart strategy, of course, that predates COVID, clearly, but to try to basically be another of the ME4, I mean, ME3, ME2, because now Etihad is nowhere to be seen anymore, I don't know. But they are really, here in Europe, you can see they're doing massive, massive investments still in the aircraft and the product, especially the hard product and, uh, and, and of course, the new Istanbul. So they, they are trying to play that game in between the making money, but also offering a much better service, maybe influenced, of course, by the likes of Emirates and Qatar. But um, do, you, do you still fly with them? Uh, yes. Uh, well, it's been a couple of years. I haven't been back to Turkey since yeah. pre-COVID, but uh, oh. if I if I go, I'll definitely probably hop on them. They got two flights a day out of Los Angeles. So, I mean, you can't beat the convenience. And I mean, yeah, they're part of Star Alliance, but I'm not necessarily looking at it from a mileage point of view. It's more convenience. But uh, no, I mean, they've done a phenomenal job. I mean, as I said, from when I was back there, that 30, 40 airplanes, now they're, I 
next this year uh, is a press release they're going to receive their 400th airplane Whoa. new airport wow. uh, serving i guess more destinations than uh, any other airline globally uh, yeah they are the they're the number one i think yeah you know they're adding uh, more and more destinations uh, they're densifying the network so create even more hub uh, waves connecting waves so, i mean they're and they're making money i mean they're had more than a billion dollar profit so it's not like they're giving it away for free wow And during during the pandemic, actually, they were they kept being strong. I mean, Qatar was the probably the number one airline in terms of pa of passenger traffic during the the pandemic, at least internationally. But Turkish was not far behind. Uh, they really kept kept pushing no matter what. And and the product, and probably Hakan, you've heard it. The product a few years ago was a bit all over the place, but it's starting to be more consistent now uh, because obviously they upgraded all the aircrafts. This feeling was also enhanced by the old Istanbul airport, where sometimes the connection made absolutely no sense in terms of the layout of the airport. Now with this brand new airport and having a better a hard product on the aircraft, uh, it's, yeah, and it also is really recognizable because they have, you know, they have this special drink at the, at the start, the lemon-based, I think, drink, whatever. They have the chef, you know, that, probably a crew that dresses up as a chef, but still it's something that you don't see in any other airline. And they have the kebab, which is freaking good actually. So that's, uh, I think it's very, very clever. I, I quite enjoy traveling with them. I didn't really enjoy their previous business class, but the current one is, is very good. No, I mean, they're definitely playing on two strengths, one location, location, location. I mean, they really mm -hmm. are in the middle of, uh, you know, between east and west. So they're able to capture traffic flows from north to south and east to west. And they're trying to play on that uh, cultural uh, hospitality and service and, you know, play, play to that end of uh, whether it's the, you know, focus on food, because food is very important in the Turkish culture and service and So, I mean, they've done a phenomenal job. I mean, I don't know if there are any business books out there, but to take that airline in 20, 30 years from, uh, I, I hate to say it, but maybe a disorganized state airline to what it is today, it's uh, pretty amazing. Have you flown them, Alex? I'm not no. sure. I've never <laughs> see, flown. that's one of the airlines you can fly now. I've never, well, see, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. I've never, no, I mean, again, this, I was blind to buy loyalty. I've been to Istanbul several times for work and I've always thought, no, thank you. I'd rather fly on a 32 year old 767 with BA, please, <laughs> with the CRT monitors at the front showing reruns of the office than go on a, on a beautiful airline. But I was thinking when you were talking about it at the beginning of the episode that, um, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated by airlines hiring other airlines to come in and help them from an operational perspective. It's not it's not new especially when you're going from exactly what you described from a from a state or quasi state run operation to something more commercial. Um I mean I it's part of the stuff that my dad's done when he was in Angola. That was an Emirates thing. Emirates Emirates do a lot of this surprisingly they did Angola Tag Angola they did Sri Lankan Um, they've done a few others, but it just, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Instead of looking around at each other going, well, let's hire, who are the, who are the flying guys, the Air Force? Yeah, they probably know how to run the airline. Let's bring them in. <laughs> Go to somebody who is not obviously going to be a direct competitor, but, but can give you some operational wherewithal. Um, and how would, I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but how involved were they? Did they sort of take the reins or was it a, an advisory thing? I'm, I'm fascinated by this well at the time when i was there they had uh, they sent down teams so there was like a team focused on 
the commercial, the commercial planning, the network, scheduling. There was another team, uh, kind of revenue management, reservations, that end of it. There was a team uh, that I worked with that was more focused on flight ops and OCC and technology. So they sent down experts in different areas. And, uh, I mean, SAS is one of many airlines that does this. I mean, Lufthansa, you've heard Lufthansa. There's Lufthansa Consulting. So there's airlines out there that kind of make this a business to go out there. And Emirates, obviously, the example that you gave. From my experience, at least at Turkish, they would kind of show you the best practices that walk you the path of this technology can do this for you. But then ultimately, it was up to the board and the Turkish managers to kind of accept it or reject it. Obviously, there was pressure from above that, hey, guys, we got to modernize. We got to move forward. We've got to be much more commercially minded. So listen to what these guys are, what the SAS is telling you. Don't necessarily blow them off saying, hey, we've been mm-hmm. doing this for the last 20, 30 years. So let's just stick with it. So, But uh, no, they had a whole team over there. Otherwise, you end up like Olympic Airways and you basically go bankrupt. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I mean, history is littered with all of those state airlines that failed to make the leap either because they didn't want to or because they just were they didn't do exactly what you described and they just became a, a kind of chapter in in history i think one of the one of the airlines even two airlines that we can cite in that uh to, to come on to your comment alex is uh that are that are in the defining moment one is ethiopian obviously which mm-hmm. seem or ronda air actually could be that seemed to be going well I keep seeing actually seeing them on some routes I'm looking for later this year. Like um, I'm thinking maybe one day I should do Addis Ababa as a layover. I don't know. Um, but the other one, uh, I'm mentioning it because I've been recently, obviously, is Saudia. Because they are clearly trying to keep up or at least catch up with the likes of Emirates and Qatar. Will Do they actually want to actually catch up? But they want to be a much bigger airline because they want to drive more traffic towards Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're clearly a state-owned entity, and they will have to let go maybe. I've never flown them, so I'm here. I'm not judging. Uh, I'm just saying they probably will have to let go of some of their practices that are very state-owned oriented type of companies, like you just said, because otherwise they will not be able to go and to make that step towards a a more commercially based and customer-focused airline. And again, I've never traveled. I'm not saying they're not customer focused. I, I I don't know. Maybe they're very good. I've, I've never flown them. Oh, definitely. And then you don't need somebody to come in for you know years on years. I mean, I, when I was there, I think SS was there maybe two years or maybe even less. But they had a whole team there, and over at least a year, they gave you you know the building blocks and heck of a lot of information. And you know, then the Turks kind of took it and ran with it. So I'm built upon that. Have you been to the new airport in Istanbul? Uh, no, it's uh, opened uh, just, uh, I think it was opening as uh, the tail end of, uh, or as a pandemic, a tail end, I think, of 2019, and then as a pandemic. 2019, yeah, yeah I, went, I went, I think it just, yeah, just when he opened. It's mind-blowing, as in, it is so big. <laughs> You're like, it wasn't completely finished in terms of the, I mean, it was finished, but you could see that they were still uh Areas probably that somebody would be like a cafe or something, and they weren't there. So it, it gave even more this impression of like, wow, this is amazingly huge. Uh, and so they're really preparing for the future, which is something that we cannot always say about Ethro. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, by the way, do you have a view on Ethro? <laughs> it's it's one of those airports people love to hate, right? I mean, well, my, my impression was uh, it was a bunch of mazes that we had to go up and down, up and down. 
border force wasn't too bad. It was actually pretty good. But then as soon as we got outside, the uh, Heathrow Express train wasn't running that day because there was some works that they had to do. So then there's this massive queue for uh, taxis and uh, Uber wasn't being very helpful either. So that was a little bit of drama getting into town. Oh, yeah, I remember you told me. And uh, on the outbound, uh, I mean, we I kind of flew a mixed itinerary. I flew United into, United, into London. So I think that was their relatively new Terminal 2. So that arrival Terminal was okay. Two, yeah. uh, departure yeah. at uh, miles on American. So we came back on American. And I believe that's Terminal 3. <laughs> uh, that terminal was a little bit older, but uh, trying to figure... A <laughs> little bit older, that's another thing. <laughs> so, anyhow, you know, and I mean, I remember Heathrow well from my uh, Virgin days. When I was at Virgin, I think it was in 91 or 92, they transitioned. They, they got the th- with the new Bermuda 2 uh, air service agreement. They were able to transition some of their flights to Heathrow from uh, Gatwick. So, back in those days, I'd been in and out of Heathrow quite a bit. So, I mean, I was, I was used to the tunnels and up these stairs, down these stairs, but uh, it's uh, not the most, uh, I don't know, let's just say maybe travel-friendly airport. Yeah, user-friendly. Especially if you have, I could see how it could be a problem for elderly folks or, you know, families with kids. And, you know, I, I had the family along too. And, you know, little ones asking, how much longer? How much longer? I'm like, uh, oh, only another 10-minute walk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so. But talking about that, obviously, LAX is also an airport that some people love to hate. Right, I don't know, Alex. What do you think in general about LAX? We we had it, by the way, guys. We did it on episode twelve, which was about in twenty fifteen oh yeah. something. Yeah. So what we said back then, I don't know if it's any relevance, and we want to hear about from the expert. But before I ask you, Akan, Alex, do you do you like this airport? Because I know you've you've flown, yeah, flown quite I, a I'm bit. very fond of of LA for LAX for a, lo- a number of reasons. The only p- part that I don't like is having to drive anywhere near it. Um, especially on World Way, but the the airport itself. Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a massive fan of of. I haven't been. I mean, to be completely frank, I haven't been a passenger out of LAX that often. Maybe twenty or thirty times in my life. Maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. That's but, more than me. <laughs> but I, there's so many redeeming features for me. Not just not just in and out, but also just mm. I think the the scale of it and the. The amount of from from an AV geek perspective, anyway, the, just the breadth of of carriers that come in and the types of airplanes and it's just constant. There's something awe inspiring about that airport. Talk on. You've been in the bowels. You have a storied experience with it because you've seen it also evolve in years, and it ha- it has changed a lot, and it's still changing. Actually, it's still it will keep changing. So. First of all, do you like it? <laughs> and then maybe tell us about that airport. No, I mean, it's definitely an airport that some people hate to, uh, you know, they, they hate and others, uh, I mean, love it. it. Depends, I think, where, if, what you're, where you're coming from. The current terminal concept came up in the early 60s at the dawn of jet age. And at that time, they had these satellite terminals. They were standalone terminals. And the major airlines, each major airline of the day kind of got their own satellite terminal. And the idea was everything was supposed to be self-contained. And the airport has that horseshoe roadway that goes in and out of it. Yeah. And the idea was we want to create the shortest distance between the curb and the terminal gate. So it was supposed to be easy in and out. Of course, you know, LA being such a car culture, that was one of the focuses. <laughs> and also the LA being on the edge of the United States, nobody considered it being a, a, a connection airport. It was always meant as an origin and destination airport where people either fly from or people come to. And even today, I mean, 
it's the number one airport globally as for in size wise of uh, origin and destination over 80 percent uh, i think last time i last number i saw was like 81 82 percent of the travelers are either originating or uh arriving into los angeles as their destination so it's mm. not a lot of connections are being performed there i didn't know that that's interesting so it's not like uh, a Dallas or an Atlanta where maybe f- more than 50% of your traffic is connecting somewhere beyond. But, I mean, the airport, uh, I mean, traces his way back into the 20s. It was actually an uh, uh, airfield where they used to host air races. You know, back in the day, just like car racing, they used to have air races of airplanes flying in circles. Uh, it didn't have its first commercial traffic until after World War II. Uh, prior to that, uh, the major airports in Los Angeles were Burbank, and there was also a place called Glendale Air, Air Terminal, which doesn't exist anymore, which is where the first transcom planes and the DC-3s and stuff like that used to fly into. But, uh, I mean, the airport's constantly going, quote-unquote, through modernization projects and upgrades. Uh, probably the biggest one was uh, in the 80s leading up to the 84 Olympics when they put the upper level roadway in and they built the initial uh, Tom Bradley International Terminal. Uh, I mean, since then, various airlines uh, have funded uh, their own terminal upgrades, whether it's uh, Terminal 4 American or Terminal 78 United. Uh, right now, Delta's in the midst of a project. Uh, there are Terminal 2s and 3s. So there's nonstop projects. The Bradley Terminal was uh, expanded further, and that's where you get that Star Alliance lounge. That was in the mid-2010s. Mm-hmm. Only, uh, what, 2021, during the pandemic, they opened another West Gates, another portion of the Bradley Terminal, which is like a satellite concourse. They go underneath the taxiway oh. to reach from the Bradley Terminal. So, I mean, there's more projects coming. They're uh, looking at the uh, 2028 Olympics as target for potentially a new Concord Zero, which would be addition mm-hmm. to Terminal 1, where Southwest is, and uh, maybe a Terminal 9, which would be connect to United's Terminal 7 and 8. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's work being done constantly. I agree, getting in and out of the airport traffic-wise can be a nightmare, especially holidays. When, uh, as Angelinos, nobody likes to take public transportation. Everybody likes to hop in their own car and drive to the airport. <laughs> Though there is, uh, I guess, some good news coming. There is going to be a rail, uh, light rail connection from the MTA that's going to connect to the airport. So that oh, wow. that's that's on the way. So for those that do want to take public transit, there'll be another option. And uh, I mean, the airport uh, for I believe it's uh, something like three thousand acres. I mean, it's it's, it's landlocked on uh, three sides, and then you got the ocean on the fourth side. So it's three thousand acres. And I mean, being the what the in twenty nineteen it was the third busiest airport in the world with passengers eighty, I think eighty five eight, or I think it was a high eighties eighty eight eighty nine million passengers for such a small airport. I mean, size wise, it does amazingly. I mean, in comparison, I think Dallas is something like six times dallas fort worth is something like six times the size in acreage so i mean the airport does an amazing job for what it has it's hard to build it's like heathrow you know you're kind of landlocked so you can only kind of adjust what you kind of have with you can't start over and uh, bulldoze everything because then what are you going to do so it's uh, i mean definitely i mean it has its detractors but i mean the concept for the airport even till today is you know let's get you from the curb to the gate as quick as possible it gets harder and harder as these new terminals are built and they get larger and larger in size but you know that's kind of what they're looking for you know yeah i i I do have a, a weird soft spot for that for that airport. I think for every single reason that you've just that you've just listed. I mean, I love to go to Dockweiler Beach at the end of the runway and just the, the water's always warm and you're 
watching these planes launch over your head. I, I don't know. There's something, there's something quite romantic about that airport, the history. I mean, it is a pain in the rear end in, in, in many regards. And it all, it feels like, <laughs> like Heathrow and it feels like, like, like uh, O'Hare in many regards that just bits are bolted on constantly throughout history. There's no flow. There's no, um, any kind of, you know, th- constant theme that runs through it. But, I don't know. I, 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 I do like that airport. No, and, and I think for an Avgeek, it's an incredible airport. I mean, we've got uh, something like 100-plus airlines serving the airport. Yeah. Uh, there's an incredible choice of destinations. Uh, you've got the in and out of course, on the north side. we got the Imperial Hill on the south yeah. side. There's also the, the Proud Bird Restaurant. I don't know if Love you guys have been. Place. Exactly. Yep. So, I mean, there's... A, I haven't. Offer. What? Come, come again, guys? What, 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 what? Yeah, that, this Which? is great. It's uh, on the, I guess it was southeast side, on the other side of the of the of Sepulveda, right? Aviation Boulevard, yeah. Aviation Boulevard, yeah. yeah. There's this um, restaurant complex with a bunch of old warbirds parked in it, and the pl- and you're also at the end of one of the arrival runways, so you're you've got planes coming over you the whole time. You've got good food and beer, uh, and it's uh, a, a nice counterbalance to the In and Out. I need to try that now. <laughs> No, definitely. And then I think for the customer too, I mean, I mentioned it before, why United and American, let's say, with the LAX is not a home hub per se. I mean, it's a, a lot of airlines like to call it a hub or a focus city, but it's not dominated by any single airline. So we have an incredible choice of airlines, choices, destinations, frequencies. So we're very lucky in that sense that we're not beholden. You know, we have one local airline and that's the one that you have to fly pretty much all the time. We have a lot of choices. That's why we end up with 100 plus airlines serving it. And it's being uh, the second largest city in the U.S., obviously, it's a lot of interest from foreign carriers, Asia Pacific in particular, and Latin America. I suppose you can you can really cut, you know go to L.A. and go. I want to go to this country, and it's not out of the realms of possibility. You you can you can get there uh, in probably no more than two flights. And the, you know, as you say, Latin America, the Latin American connection. I mean, it, it, from the Bay Area, if you want to go south of mexico you go through la or miami but for obviously for for a lot of south america la is the is the gateway uh to 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 that which i I mean i can't think of an airport that has that breadth of destination i wonder i wonder where they rank i don't even know if there is a ranking of most destinations served by a single airport but la lax has got to be up there and also the um because of the distance both from Asia and from mm. Europe, you, in terms of what you were just saying about the type of aircraft, you have a lot of 380s because Lufthansa was going with the 380s. Air France uses a 380, yeah. BA uses a 380, Asiana uses a 380. So you get the 380, which is not always uh, seen in the US. So you have really a breadth of uh, different birds to see as well, which which I enjoyed last time from Lean and Out. Was quite, <laughs> I wish we had something like that in, in, in the UK. Um, it's one of the best views you can have. So, yeah, no, I. So, do you, uh, because for you, it's an origin and destination airport. Do you like it yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I know my way around, definitely. 
I have a badge also, yeah, so I, I can sometimes uh, not necessarily cut through or jump through security or anything like that. But, uh, I mean, I know my way around. I'm in there working also because I have clients down at LAX, so I'm there on a regular basis. So whether I like it or not, I'm always going to be there too. <laughs> but, but, but no, for travel, I mean, I like it. I mean, for the most part, a lot of airlines have invested in newer terminals, so it looks a little bit better. There's new lounges, whether it's uh, the United Polaris Lounge or American Flagship Lounge. They've invested in lounges. There's the Bradley Terminal with its nice international lounges. Uh, I guess Qantas just reopened their. Uh, they have uh, their two One World lounges. There's uh, what's what's the top level of uh, uh, One World Emerald or Emerald? Emerald. Emerald. Yeah. So there's a, an Emerald lounge there that's run by Qantas. So oh. that's nice with uh, dining service and all that. So there's there's some nice lounges and I mean if you like to shop at the airport, which some passengers do from some parts of the world, there's you know a bunch of shopping, especially at the Bradley Terminal. Of course, as a local, I would never buy anything at the airport since everything is overpriced. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it gets me in, gets me out. I mean, I know kind of like I got I got employee parking, so I'm able to park and get in and out myself too. So I, oh, at some, some, some areas I know, you know, you take the shuttle here, you take the shuttle there, or you walk out this door and you can save yourself a bunch of time or you go through this door. And so, I mean, these are not necessarily things that everybody would know, but uh, I mean, I, I make it in and out. All right. In and out. Well played. There you go. That's good. <laughs> double, double. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny. I mean, when we f- first started Virgin America and we were still based in New York, the airline was originally going to be based out of LAX. Um, and then I think somebody must have written a very large check for us to move to San Francisco because operationally it was a stupid thing to do. But we were going to be in the, what is now, I think, the Square Enix, the, the Japanese video game software company. Um, their building, which is in the southeast corner of the of the airfield. So it would have been the best views. Not that we didn't have great views where we were, but... Uh, every time I go to LA, I look at that building and go, that could have been, that could have been where I worked. <laughs> and now they make video games. <laughs> One of my clients has an office on Century Boulevard and they're up on like the 10th floor. So, I mean, they're, they're looking, it's like on the tower, they're looking down on the runways on the oh, south side. So, cool. so whenever I'm over there, it's like, uh, let's have a seat next to the window so I can watch everything go by on the background. Yeah. Oh man. Well, it's good that you didn't get uh, bored from, from- watching because you started you started your introduction by talking about how as a kid you were go earlier to before a flight to see the aircraft and collecting so basically you're you're still the same (laughs) that is true 50 years later hasn't changed yeah we we do the same i'm also going super early when i go still you know i have a flight coming up at the end of the month i'll probably go way too early for no reason whatsoever and i actually even added a layover that makes no no reason whatsoever but I had to deliver so I can be in another airport. It's, yeah. And I'm just going in Europe, by the way. I'm going to Athens via layover, which makes zero sense. Uh, but yeah, because I just like it. <laughs> if I cannot tell you. <laughs> Maybe I needed my fix or something. It's, it's <laughs> definitely a sickness. Yeah. It's, 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 a bad, it's a bad habit that I'll uh, happily take. All right, amen. You, you, you said you traveled a lot. Uh, we talked about it just earlier. Do you have any very memorable flights. That's a question we ask all our guests, whether it's for a good reason because it was amazing or something extraordinary happened or maybe for a bad reason because the service was the crappiest you've ever seen. I'd, or you can you can quote multiple. Well, I, I, I'll say that's not necessarily a flight, a flight I was trying to make. I was, uh, how about I give you this story? I was, uh, <laughs> I want to say this was in the late 2000s. I had a 
gig in uh, Boston. So I flew in for a meeting early in the morning. You know, it was a red eye from the West Coast. I go to the meeting. Now I know it's supposed to start snowing in Boston by like that evening, which is fine. I had to fly like three o'clock back to the West Coast. Meeting ends, uh, hop on, uh, get out to the Boston airport, check in. Everything's fine. No snow yet. As I'm waiting in the lounge, it just starts snowing heavy. Next thing we know, flight's a little bit delayed. The inbound plane didn't land. It diverted. Okay, we're going to try to swap airplanes for you. Before you know it, Boston airport's like snowed in. I was stuck in Boston for three days. Oh, no. (laughs) It was one of these massive nor'easter storms. And like the first so many hours, we couldn't get a hotel. Then finally, uh, you know, there's the... Some another passenger said, "Oh, there's a whatever the brand hotel was it in the back bay. Let's figure out how to get there. We go downstairs, try to find a shuttle van to get to the hotel. You know, nobody wants to take us. Finally, we find somebody of this big uh, Econoline Ford van that's like almost like slipping and sliding, trying to make it. So I kind of hang out at the hotel the second day or the third day of the hotel when we're about to leave. You know, the hotel's running out of food because also and half their employees didn't show up to work." <laughs> Finally, we make it to the airport uh, like three days later and, uh, you know, we fly out. But boy, I mean, that was an unexpected layover in uh, Boston that I was not planning on. Of course, since I was only thinking I was going to be there for about one day and have that quick meeting, I didn't have much extra clothes with me. Oh, no. And good, you know, where are you going to go find everything when the city's basically closed down because of a snowstorm? So, you know, I'm kind of hanging out in the hotel room with my, uh, you know, T-shirt and not much else. So, just <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was that was a little bit of an adventure. Wow. And and the sad part is, you know, I've had to be, go back to Boston every time, but there's like, you know, a nice place and everything like that. But there's like this negative thing in my head as <laughs> as a result of that. Where's the snow going to start? Yeah, it's like, can we pick another city instead of Boston? Can I go somewhere else? You know. <laughs> Did you ever get snowed in, Alex? Yeah, uh, I don't think actually I've been snowed in. I've been delayed for twelve hours because of a technical issue while it also happened to be snowing, but the snow was never the I don't think the root cause. Same here. I was, yeah, no, no, not the snow. No, there was. It was always an airline fuck up. Part, part <laughs> of my French, but it was not the snow. I mean, then they can of course argue that the snow was an element, but it was clearly not. But yeah, but I was, yeah, maybe because in Europe we know how to do with the snow. Not, not in the UK. I'm talking Nordics. Well, well, one of the things that they're able to do in the Nordics, I don't know if you know, but they have like heaters on the runways and taxiways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it melts the snow. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of incredible. I noticed that when I was up there, uh, whenever it was a couple of weeks ago, that the taxiways and the ramp and the runways were all, even as the snow kind of came down, not not so much in Oslo, but certainly in Stockholm, it was um, clear as clear as anything. And I thought, I bet, I bet, I know why. And a little googling, of course, and sure enough, yeah, they've got the the heated. Well, I'm going back up there on Wednesday. I'm going to to Stockholm. So if it's snowing, I'm going to be like. Hey, look, look, and no one is going to care that's sitting next to me. Who are you flying with this time? Norwegian. Aha. Oh, nice. That's a story for our next Norwegian. episode. Then. Wow. The, the, post, uh, the post-Norwegian Norwegian. Post-Norwegian Norwegian. Yeah, whatever they want to call themselves. They're just passing that brand around. Norwegian. Yeah, they have like, what, two, two, two aircrafts. No, I'm kidding, of course. But they, they only have seven threes, right? That one does, yeah. That Norwegian. The other Norwegian is now called Norse. Yeah, no, I know. We talked about <laughs> So yeah, they let go of all the, the the Dreamliners. Oh, there you go. Well, that's interesting. Another see another airline. Yeah. 
Any other stories you want to share? Well, I, not necessarily flights. I mean, when I worked at Virgin, I mean, I had tons of stories of incidents and events happening with uh, whether it's, okay, fine. You want to hear one? We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you one. Uh, how about uh, this one? It's, uh, it's a well-known male uh, celebrity. Uh, he has a house in Los Angeles and he has a house in London and he's flying Virgin one night. And he gets dropped off at the curb of the airport. We know he's coming, so I have an agent out there to meet him. And literally, all he's traveling with is, is a T-shirt, jeans, a sweater, and passport. It doesn't have anything else on him. I mean, fine. He's rich. He's got houses on both ends. He doesn't need to travel with anything. Uh, he walks in the terminal. And at that time, we were at uh, Terminal 7, which is the United Terminal. And we used the United Red Carpet Club. Well, for some reason, I, our flight was slightly delayed. He didn't want to go to the lounge. And uh, next thing I know, I get a call from the agent who's escorting him through the terminal. Says uh, he wants a hamburger, but he has no money. I'm like, oh my! So after after run up and find him, and he was, I think it was Burger King line or something like that. He's standing in line at Burger King trying to get a burger. Had to loan the man like twenty dollars so he can get his burger. <laughs> so I mean, it's like you know some incredible stuff, and you know just like anybody else, he sits down there, has his burger, and you know then it's like, sir, what do you want to do? You want to go to the lounge? He's like, no, I'll just walk around. Then he goes to you know the shop and reads magazines and stuff like that. But I mean, it was just amazing how some of these folks traveled while you have another celebrity i'll, I'll say it was a, a, a famous uh, female singer and she shows up literally like with a van outside and has like you know 20 trunks of luggage and stuff like that so we go from like one extreme of guys basically traveling with only his passport in his pocket and another one with you know 20 trunks worth of uh, you know, louis vuitton trunks with you know all types of clothing and god knows what else in there so it's it's a lot of uh you know stories and it's things like that they said now nah, let me deal with the boxes instead of the passengers <laughs> even though you got to be very adaptive and very flexible when you're at the you know when you're dealing with customers but it was uh, sometimes too many stories i'm guessing you didn't get that 20 bucks back uh no i never got that 20 bucks back <laughs> And then actually, <laughs> what I did get once was, uh, at, at, I mean, I don't know, it keeps happening to celebrities. A celebrity lost her passport. And uh, I mean, a lot of celebrities, their real names are different than what they're known as yeah. uh, in, in the industry. So apparently her passport was found by somebody in the lady's bathroom and it got turned into lost and found. And uh, of course, we're looking for this lady's passport, but everyone's thinking her name is the celebrity uh, name. So, oh and, and lost and found was holding onto her passport the whole time and had it like an hour before departure. But they're like, oh no, we have no passports by that name or anything like that. But, you know, so good, good Samaritan that turned it in only 15 minutes prior, but nobody put two and two together at the, at the airport. So the celebrity man is like, okay, can we make some phone calls? Can we put you on the airplane? Will they let you into the UK because you are a UK citizen without uh, your passport? And, Eventually, they, she was, you know, they they let her go, and then the next day, we discovered well, lost and found had her passport anyway. So we ended up, uh, you know, at that I think DHL or whatever was available at that time, we ended up sending it to her. And the next time uh, she came through the airport, I mean, she was super nice to everybody, and you know, thanking everybody for the extra efforts we made to get her on board the airplane. And that's nice. She invited us. She's also the owner of uh, or partner in a restaurant here in Los Angeles. And she invited the entire Virgin staff, about 20 employees to come and dine and drink and have a good time one night just for that. So, wow, that's refreshing. Yeah. Yes. I was about to say the Definitely. same. That's nice. 
Wow. See, non-boxers can be nice too. <laughs> That's true. It could pay off. Oh. Though I think working at the airport, I've always gotten an appreciation for it. Just try to be nice to, you know, when you're dealing with agents. And I mean, I see it right now. One of my clients is actually a, a grant handler. And I mean, these employees, they're not, you know, making a lot of money. You know, they're trying to do their best. It's not their fault half the time or, you know, 99% of the time that something's not working, whether it's an IT system or the airline mm -hmm. is delayed. Just just try to, you know, maybe put yourself in their feet for a little bit and just even as frustrated as you might be, just try to step back, take a deep breath and, uh, you know, just explain your problem and, you know, calmly. And a lot of them, if they can try to help you, they will try to help you. So I fully agree with that. Amen. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's uh, something that I, I, I really despise when I see someone talking down to an employee in any setting. That's really, uh, I judge people, but how they treat other people. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Turkish. You told me the story in London, and I kind of hooked it a few episodes ago. That flight with Turkish departing from Jeddah. Can you tell the story? No problem. Uh, this was... Uh, <laughs> He's been talking about this <laughs> since you guys got together. Uh, obviously, it was one of the Hajj flights. And uh, during the Hajj, these customers, uh, they collect their holy water. So they got their jugs of holy water, I believe, as you mentioned on the podcast. And another thing they do is uh, they collect rocks and pebbles. And apparently, these rocks and pebbles are part of the ceremony. They're supposed to be thrown to get rid of the devil. And some of the passengers also bring the rocks back home with them instead of just leaving them in Saudi Arabia. So, this needs to be counted for in the weight and balance. The added weight of water and the added weight of rocks. So, this A310 one day takes off out of Jeddah, you know, chock block full of pilgrims, headed to, uh, I believe it was Istanbul. And on its way up through the Red Sea, the aircraft uh, by HF contacts Ops Control says, we're not, we're not sure what's going on, but the aircraft is not performance as we expect. Uh, you know, we're not unable to maintain the altitude that we're hoping for or planned. The fuel burns a little bit higher, but, you know, otherwise everything seems okay, but we're going to keep going, but we're going to monitor just. And in the meantime, the maintenance teams are, you know, trying to see what's going on. Well, it turns out uh, the flight had to land short. It landed short in Antalya, basically, as soon as it crossed the Mediterranean, the first airport it got to because the fuel burn was much higher and it just couldn't make a stumble. The plane lands. Everybody starts looking at what's going on here. They started looking at the weight and balance documents and everything. It turns out the added weight for the rocks was never calculated. The added weight for the water was never calculated. So the airplane basically was overweight than planned. So it couldn't maintain, you know, whether it's supposed to be 370, it could never reach that altitude and it was fuel burn was much higher. So it's a little bit of a mistake that the handlers down in uh, <laughs> Jeddah made. <Right>. Wow. <laughs> Do they actually count every single, because I've seen like, literally when I was doing that queue, I was like, what is all this? They all have these boxes and styrofoam, you know, like protecting whatever that was inside. I knew it was water on some because it was it was marked. It's like, do they actually weigh each or do they make an average? I don't well, know. Gen generally for weight and balances, there's an average for normal weights. Like there's an average for an adult, a child, um, or, or some airlines go male, female, child, infant. And then there's an average weight for uh, baggage, a piece of baggage. So you multiply those out by how many folks and how many pieces of baggage you have. I'm not quite sure how they do it on these Hodge flights, but, uh, you know, there definitely needs to, uh, at that day, whether they use an average or passengers plus an average 
jug of water plus average amount of rocks. I don't know, but uh, it was definitely not taken into account that day. And that average is also uh, depends on if that celebrity comes with an entire van full of luggage, right? <laughs> That's true. Well, at Virgin, I remember we should actually, the, the, some airlines weighed the luggage and put it into the system of the actual weight of the luggage. Other airlines just use an average of just numbers of bags. So it can vary between airlines. This is going back to our discussion of how 20 different airlines could do the same procedure 20 different ways. Is that still the case? Uh, I don't know if, uh, specifically for Virgin, but I know some customer airlines of uh, the company I represent at LAX, they use average weights. So, you know, if you check in two bags, they just assume it's whatever. But other ones, you know, they don't actually, when you put it on the scale, she, he or she will input it. Okay, this one is, uh, you know, 20 kilos. This one is 12 kilos. And then they have a total. I see. Okay. Did, did, they ever lead? did you ever see like... I mean, this one, the story you told us about uh, that uh, Jeddah flight is uh, peculiar, but did he ever, these variants in uh, how they operate, did he ever lead to mistakes or approximations or stuff that if you had been the boss, you'd say, come on, guys, don't do it this way because it will obviously lead to an issue. Uh, not necessarily mistakes, but I mean, it, 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 I think one of the issues is sometimes airlines, I, in my opinion, overcomplicate stuff. So it's harder to train staff if you've got procedures that are super, super complicated. Sometimes, you know, keep it simple, you know, stupid is, uh, you know, it works. I mean, as much as uh, people want to throw rocks at, for instance, Southwest Airlines with their big meltdown, I mean, they were an airline that, you know, kind of focus on keep their procedure simple, don't get you know, too, too detailed oriented. I mean, not per se detail oriented as it's a sloppy procedure, but, you know, just have something that you guys can mass produce, make it easy, make it do the same procedure over and over and over. So some airlines, especially, I mean, I won't name some airlines, but there's been some new startup airlines, uh, there's one Asia Pacific startup airline that I think got every single airlines, probably the way they started is they collected every single airlines manuals and they kind of like picked and choose between uh, how this airline does it and how that airline does it. And what they came up with was, you know, something uh, almost a nightmare freakish procedure of how to do, for instance, uh, a certain task when it could have been done so simple. But sometimes I hate to say it, but in certain departments or certain positions, people end up in spots that not necessarily have the experience for it. So they try to look at how does airline A do it? How does airline B do it? How does airline C? Okay, I'll take a little bit from each one, but when you put it all together, it doesn't really make sense. So, yeah. And when you're dealing with particularly like safety-related issues, whether it's flight ops or weight and balance and some of these things, I mean, you don't want to deviate too far. No. I'm not going to ask you to name the airline, of course, but that really sounds like an airline that could be out of Japan. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> They love procedures and paperwork and, and rules and codes. So it could be that. I'm not going to say it's Zipair. It never told me it's not that. I don't know. It might tell us after the, we end the podcast, which is going to be in about 10 minutes. So it could be. Could be. Uh, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Do you... Um, we had a discussion we had. I mean, uh, earlier we, we discussed about the uh, the fact that it was probably a depressing thought for some of our listener about you know traveling less because of the use of uh, these uh, communication tools for us consultants but how do you see in general more generally the 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 airline industry moving on uh, the numbers uh, current numbers the us domestic is basically back to 2019 like a 4% plus or minus so is very very close globally is 75% i would say and uh, of course it's dragged down by china which just reopened but they have a lot of new rules i mean a lot of countries now are imposing again the, the same stuff that we knew back in the day like a covid test and and other stuff um and china actually itself china is actually i think forcing 
travelers outbound travelers to do a, a, a test as well so that meaning that china is, is dragging down the, the the global numbers but europe is about i think it's also like probably 85 percent of what it used to be in in um, africa or a little bit less um, um middle east also 85 percent and uh I think North America, so if you add as well Canada and, and Mexico, is might be 95%, so we're very close. But it seems that not only the way we travel has changed, but who travels and how, how many times it has changed. So what, do you, what is your view because you're inside the industry? Well, I think that what you ended with is the pertinent piece here. I think that type of clients and how people are traveling has changed. I mean, I think there's no doubt that travel will come back, exceed 2019 numbers, but uh, the big question yeah. seems to be, is the business traveler, are they going to be there? Are we mm -hmm. going to be traveling as much for business? But the leisure travel has definitely roared back. And here in the US, what I don't necessarily like the term, but they keep talking about something leisure, you know, a mix between business and leisure, where somebody might go for work two days, and then they tack on the weekend and stay somewhere else. And at least here in the U.S., from what I've seen, and I see it in my own family and around colleagues and friends, a lot of people are working from home. I mean, it's, it's a hybrid work model that they go in their office maybe two days a week, but the other three days they're able to work remotely. And I know people that have picked up, and I know somebody that moved to Colorado. They used to work here in California. They moved to Colorado to to uh, work from now on and remotely, they're able to do that. So I think the way we're living and we work is going to drive the way a certain percentage of the population travels, whether for both for leisure and for business. So, but internationally and globally, I think no doubt over time, I mean, the numbers will be exceeded because we all want to travel. People yeah. like to connect. People yeah. like to go see other cultures and places. So, I mean, what's your take? Yeah, I, th I, I think the, the work from home stuff is is here to stay. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. But I think... It's a, it's a it's a difficult one because the stuff you said at the, at the top is also also very true that there's definitely a sheen that's been removed from from travel from air travel especially it's just it's not fun anymore and that's coming from us as enthusiasts we we can we can see it so what the vast majority of quote unquote normal people that that uh, that travel and go this is even worse than it always was are they you know and, and then you have things like the southwest met meltdown and and strikes and and things like that i think people may look at some of the lessons they learned during covid look a little closer to home for that long weekend um, look look to alternative modes of transportation like 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 trains here in europe but i don't think Again, to the points you made earlier in the episode, I don't think business travel is ever going to go. And I mean, you are case in point, point in case, case in point. You are the exemplar of that with the amount that you have reduced your your, your travel compared to 250,000 miles a year. So I don't see it ever going back. And I think for, for our kind of physical health, mental health, and the health of the planet, and I can't believe I'm going to say this. I don't actually think it's a bad thing. No, I agree. I agree. My my take is similar to to both to both of you. I I never say never because there's always after. I mean, first of all, we have the the crisis at the same time than this kind of post COVID world. So there's been a recovery, and then now there's a there was a global crisis. It might not last as long as we thought. Gas prices are back to where they were. We don't know basically, right? That's not. And what to the point that Ed made in the previous episode about maybe needed to restart a machine as well. Um, the airlines are also at fault here, uh, guilty for having 
fired way too many people and then uh, now having difficulties to rehire them, especially with sometimes harsher conditions. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. But however, let's see if I put myself in five years, I don't know, because uh, there's always like, you remember American Airlines CEO saying, we're never going to lose money ever again. There's always going to be a phase in the system where everybody's overconfident and over-traveling. Maybe there's no, no, no such a thing of over-traveling, but you know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know, I agree at least for sure that the numbers are going to exceed uh, what it was before, because I think a lot of people want to travel and people are keep getting wealthier, especially in, in emerging countries. So they will travel. That's the growth of APAC and that's the growth in Africa that is going to be massive. So in numbers, absolute numbers, it's is, is for sure. How long, when, do, when will it happen? I don't know. I, I hope for the airlines that they can keep recovering. Um, some some are actually making money. You mentioned uh, Turkish earlier. I really hope they do not forget that it has to be something still um, dreamy to travel. Yeah. It's something still hopeful and it's something emotional. It's not just a means of transportation. I know when we say that in the US, it's often seen as taking the bus, <laughs> but I still want it to be an experience that is a bit out of the ordinary, mm -hmm. not just taking a bus. And I have nothing against buses, guys, but, uh, you know, I don't know. So I hope I hope it uh, recovers. I don't think it's going to be this year. It was going to be close, but not this year. And business travel? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, we get to travel. Will you get to travel? I can, do you think? A little bit more this year, a little bit less or the same? Do you have any... Uh, Well, forecast for your own travels. I mean, honestly, I'd like to travel a little bit more, but I mean, it's uh, dependent yeah. on what business is doing and I mean, what my clients want. I mean, for family, yeah, we're planning a few family leisure trips uh, where, you know, do what the wife wants and uh, whatever the <laughs> little one wants. So we'll, we'll be doing that. I mean, I think I'll travel a little bit more, but it's certainly nowhere close to uh, pre-COVID days. And also one thing, uh, and Alex touched on it with train travel, one thing I'm seeing is with companies with their ESG goals, everyone's, you know, jumping on this bandwagon mm -hmm. that we have to, you know, do something. And yeah. one of the easiest ways for companies to meet their ESG goals is reduce travel. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. So, yeah. you know, with the CFOs, you know, looking at reduced <laughs> overall spend, you know, here's another quote unquote easy win for a lot of companies to just reduce travel and we get a bunch of green points for it. Yeah, wrong. I, I will say, however, it's a bit striking because you travel, you, sorry, you work mostly in with the airline industry so you'd think we'd think alex and i did you'd be the one traveling because you know the travel industry will say you know but you need to travel because part of our dna <laughs> to have to travel and you're not which is um i don't know what it says actually but it's, well, i mean yeah. some some airline corporate offices are still not fully manned and some corporate offices are you know they've let a good portion of the staff work remotely so yes airlines want you to onboard the airplane but i think they're also adjusting to the reality that the workplace is shifting i mean we were probably headed this way pre-pandemic anyways but this was the pandemic just created this huge you know maybe leap of to change of work yeah i don't want to i don't want to end up on this because i mean it's uh we need to be we need to be hopeful <laughs> to, well, yeah for work yes but yeah. for leisure i mean japan is um because you said at some point that you we would like to go back um and you were working there like like i was very often i haven't been back as you know guys i hope to go this year I'm going to use, you know, one of these programs that I'm, I'm, I'm leaving because I'm a free agent. I'm going to bankrupt my miles on one. I'm going to say a very nice flight with, uh, because the prices are horrendous. I don't know how it is from LA, but the price is very, very expensive to Japan, which 
shows that a lot of people are are willing to go back. Uh, and Shin, whom you know, um, mm. Alex, is telling me that basically it looks like 2019. Clearly it's not, but when you see it in numbers where there was, I think, two, what was it? 2.5 million um, monthly visitors in Japan in 2019. It's probably already like at least half of it. And you know how it is. We don't, as humans, we cannot make the difference between one and two million. I mean, if there's people, there's people. So um, people want to travel. So I hope this, this finishes something a bit more, 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 more happy, more hopeful that we will keep traveling. We will keep actually have content for this show because guys, if, you, if, we, if you're not traveling, I can, how can we keep, talking about aviation in this podcast there's no way no i mean definitely i do want to travel i want to try the new for instance the new ana product i want to try the uh updated oh, qatar yeah. suites oh, i mean there's stuff i definitely i want to get back to you know cafe lounge in hong kong you haven't tried qatar you're like Alex. No, i have tried qatar i've flown them for oh. that's why they're probably one of my more favorite airlines i really like their product i like the ground service i like their dine on board you know the when you can it's like a restaurant you kind of choose you pick and choose what you want so i love that concept so i mean but i want to try their new uh seat their new uh, suite i guess that's that they have so q suite uh, so you haven't done it oh that q suite is something you you you're he's tall because i've met him and we were next to each other so it's maybe not the best seat for taller people but even if i'm tall i still love that q suite man it's just like uh i hesitated to use it to go to dubai in february ended up using emirates just because of that but it made no sense in terms of pricing because everything is very expensive for europe right now but other otherwise it's yeah it's a fantastic product ana i think our friend joseph um alex has done it the new ana i think he has business yeah seat. that looks freaking fantastic. and if I, if I if i do a trip to scandinavia i'm thinking you know i want to catch that new uh finnair uh seat also you know check that out see yeah, yeah that weird seat yeah. so i mean it's hopeful i mean there's there's things we want to do that we're looking forward to <laughs> there you go <laughs> There you go. So do you know where you're going to fly? This is usually our, our, our question that we end up with, and then I'll play the music. Do you know where you're going to fly next? Where is your next flight? Um, Work? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, spring break, which is coming up in uh, end of March here, when there's no school. Either Hawaii, which is a very frequent destination for Californians, so that's you know a relatively easy hop for us. Or uh, if uh, the other side of the family wants to go skiing. So who knows? Maybe I can find some <laughs> snow in late March in Utah or Colorado. So we're negotiating and working on options. You're not going to say on record what you prefer because you want to make the wife happy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you just told us you're going to... Yeah, Stockholm and then uh, Stockholm to, to Paris. I think we're going to miss each other. Yeah, by the hours. Because I'm doing the layover is in Paris. I really want to hurt myself doing a layover in Paris and staying overnight. I'll explain that in you know, the next episode, whenever that is. Um, and I'm flying Air France, actually. Me too. Oh, wow. So there you go. But I think... Just miss each other, yep. Or I'll be stuck in the terminal, because it happens often in Paris, and I'll, I'll, I'll see you for a croissant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Akan, you know what you need to do? You need to find a flight of Air France and come to Paris also at the end of the month. So we're all going to be stuck with uh, some strike, but at least they'll have good croissant and, and coffee. Fantastic. Right? <laughs> there you go. Where is the end music I'm going to put? Oh, yeah. And before we do that, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. This no, is a pleasure. No, thank you, guys. Big thank you. And you guys, uh, I mean, through your podcast, I think provide a valuable entertainment service and, you know, and educational, too. I mean, I, I've learned stuff through you guys. And, and it's as I said, you guys have been part of a lot of my travels internationally in my years as I walk around different towns and cities. So I greatly enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. That's very kind. 
We provide education. Alex, I'm, we're teachers yeah. now. I, I like the entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> me too, the entertainment. Uh, let me play the music and talk over it anyway. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. But I, I, yeah, I don't see... I don't see are we... It's a very nice compliment you're doing us because uh, we seem to be learning from you all the time. Yeah. I don't think we can teach you anything. <laughs> don't worry, I'm sure there's a lot. Always, t There's always room to learn. Agreed. Anyway, everyone, have a safe uh, January. We'll be recording somewhere in, I guess, end of January or early Feb with Alex going to the Nordics to Stockholm and then going to Paris. And me being stuck in Paris and meeting Alex there for a croissant. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send a, a, a private flight to get Hakan so we can meet the three of us in, in Paris. How to not bet st start 2023. Thank you, Hakan. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, guys. Safe travels. Merci. Happy flying.